Uh, please go on an uh, imaginative journey with me, would you? You ready for an imaginative journey? Yes, they are. I knew it. I knew it. Imagine that the alarm clock goes off on a Monday morning and there's no snooze for you. No, no, no. You hit it. It's almost before it's happened. You're already out of bed. You're pretty much in your work clothes. You're so excited. You hop out, you scoff down your breakfast, you get in the car, you zoom all the way to work, you go through the front door full of excitement and anticipation. Why? Because you have the dream job. Ooh. In this job, it's not an easy job, but even the challenge of the job is, uh, is good for you. It, it uh, is perfectly uh, suited to your skill set. It trains you in all sorts of areas of your life. Uh, the environment of the job is fantastic. The res- you always have the resources for what you need to do. And the best thing of all, your boss is an absolute legend. Got it? Has everyone got it? It's easy, isn't it? Because it's very close to reality, I'm sure, for most of you. Um, okay, hold that thought. I've brought your thoughts up here, but I'm now going to smash them to the ground because disaster strikes. In fact, no, you strike and you do something terrible. I'll let you imagine. What could it be? And you get fired. Okay. This isn't a kind of, mm, will I get fired? Is there a written warning here? No, this is a gross misconduct. I'm definitely out the door. You take your plant pot, you clear your desk, you're off. And the next day, the alarm clock goes off. You're just there in despondency. How did I blow it so badly, this great job I had? A couple of days later, the phone rings, and you're still in bed. You pick it up. Don't even look at who it is. And as you answer the phone, you find it's your boss. Your old boss is there. He's he's on the phone. Oh, no, he's going to have another go at me again. No, funnily enough, not. Your boss says to you, he says, look, I, I know what you did was terrible. You know that as well. Um, I know you don't really deserve this, but I've pulled some strings. I've worked out a way to get you your job back. Would you like to come back and work with us? Has everyone got it? Has everyone got the the picture? Okay, okay. Yeah, I think that's a yes. In a sense, that picture there is a way to understand the entire Christian story. Let me rewind back through it again. That's a way to understand the Christian story. Why do you think that one through? I'll just kind of put us into our context of what we're doing at the moment in this uh, series of talks that we're doing on a Sunday morning. In this uh, series, we're looking at some of the foundations of Church Central South here. Uh, some of the key things, values, I guess, this church is built on. And throughout it all, we're asking the question, is this a church uh, that you could belong to? We're treating this like a membership course, really, and we have different ways of doing this. But we'd like to know, look, are you, do you want to be committed to, to, to this, to this community of people? And these are some of the foundations uh, that we're built on. And we've heard already from Rich a few weeks ago uh, about the foundation of foundations, uh, the good news of our adoption uh, by the Father, our forgiveness by the Son, and our filling with the Holy Spirit. That is right. We've, you've heard from Rich, haven't you, on that? It's quite confusing around the church at the moment because everything's in a funny order. So that was a while ago. Last time, Jonathan, was it last week or the week before? Yep. Uh, Jonathan talked about the church and what the Bible teaches about how to build a local church community of believers like this one, and foundation of church, very important. Okay. And today I'd like to focus on the foundation of our mission, or to put it slightly differently, the job that God has given to us. And uh, this is foundational for us. Uh, Our mission, our job is core of who we are as a church. Uh, But to change the analogy slightly, I guess the foundations analogy talks about a house, doesn't it? In a sense, mission is, while it's a foundation, it's also the reason why the house is built in the first place. 
It's why God wants Church Central to exist uh, and why we want to build it to be as flourishing and as flourishing a home to as many people as possible. And my essential point is going to be this, uh, the banner under which everything else I say sits, I guess, would be that while we're not loved on the basis of what we do, it's not true to say that we're loved so we're loved so there's nothing for us to do. I stumbled that side, so I want to say that again so you can get that. It's true that we are not loved on the basis of what we do. Do we all agree with that? It's going to be implicit as Christians. We're, we're not loved on the basis of what we do. It's going to be implicit throughout this talk. But that doesn't mean it's true to say we're loved so there's nothing for us to do. Those two things are not the same. No, actually, we're loved. Because we're loved, we're given loads of things to do. Wonderful, fulfilling, dignifying, exciting things. As Christians, essentially, we've got a, a job to do. And it's not just for some of us. It's not just some corner of the church, the mission bit. No, as members of Church Central South, actually, I'll go further than that. As Christians, well, while I'm at it, why don't I go even further? As human beings living as our Creator intended us to, we are people on a mission. And I'd like to convince you that it's not just good news for those we go to, it's good news for us as we go as well. Now, what I want to do to kind of wrap us up in this whole thing is uh, the simple task of doing a survey of the whole of history, if that's okay with you, in our time that we have. And to do this, I'm going to need a bit of help, and I forgot to do this. Ali, uh, Ali, Russ, and Sarah, could you help me with something? I've got seven chairs over there. I need them just behind me while I'm talking, uh, in the opposite order, confusingly, to which they are. Okay, so the one on the far right, Sarah, if that one could go here, and then it could follow through to over here. And while I'm at it, let's just see, have I done this right? I've done this I've done this wrong, haven't I? And while you could you turn all the th- <laughs> could you turn all the things around so you can't see them either? There'll have to be some taping. I'm too sorry, sorry to be demanding. Well, this is what happened. I'm sure this won't be a distraction at all. I'll just I'll just keep going. Um, thanks, guys. Uh, flip them around. The idea is to have them all white there. So no, you're right. You got it. There we go. That's it. He's there. Yep, 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 yep. This is looking good. A round of applause for my willing and prepared helpers. Very good. I can see this one's arrived already, so we can start here uh, while the rest of history is falling into place behind me. Um, when we go to the very start of things as Christians, we go to three words, don't we? What are our three words? You saw it. You saw it. Well, anyway, I'll give you a gold star. Thanks, guys. Really great. In the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It says in Genesis 1 verse 1. Uh, and as Christians, we believe, great job. Let's see if they've ended up in the right order. We'll see. Um, uh, we believe that God made everything from, from nothing, yes. Creatio ex nihilo, as you say, if you want to sound clever, um, which I often do. Um, he made everything from nothing, but actually, in Genesis 1, the story, the picture we're given is of something. God comes to something. The earth is not nothing. It's a watery, dark chaos, essentially. It has two features. It is uh, formless and void, it used to say in the translation I read as a, a kid. Uh, but it, it basically is empty and it lacks order, okay? And so God immediately in the Bible is presented as a God with a job to do. He has to bring life and order to the chaos that is there. And if you know the story, you will know that that's exactly what God does. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, what's he doing? He's bringing life and bringing order to the chaos. And on day six, he makes human beings. 
And human beings, in many ways, are the pinnacle of God's creation. We are made in God's image. And immediately, we are presented as people who aren't just put here to be, but to do. So in chapter 1, verse 27, we're made. Human beings are made in God's image. In verse 28, immediately, God says this. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Um, so we're given a job right off the bat, straight away given a job. And notice, this job uh, is not like God's doing this big job that's really exciting. And he goes, oh, there's that cupboard I've been meaning to clean for ages. Oh, it's really boring. I can't bother to do that. Let's make someone to do that. People, can you unclean the cupboard? Here's a broom. Off you go. It's not that type of job. It's not a peripheral, unimportant, dull job that he gives people to do while he does the really exciting stuff. No, it's exactly the same job that God himself is doing. I don't know if you can spot that. Look at the second sentence. Fill the earth and govern it. God had come to a, a dark, watery chaos that was empty. So what did he do? He filled it. And he says to us, fill the earth. And he also came to a watery chaos that lacked order. It was formless, so he gave it order. What does he say to us? Fill the earth and govern it, rule it, subdue it, bring order to it. This is a stunning truth of Christianity. That, that God says to us, I've got this mission, I've got this job, and uh, I've chosen you uniquely in my whole creation to join me in completing this mission, in fulfilling this job, this role I've got. And it all sounds very grand and big picture. Whoa, fill the earth. Job description, fill earth, subdue it. <laughs> there we go. That's pretty big. Where do you start on that? Well, amazingly, Adam is given a very clear, practical starting place. So chapter 2, verse 15 of Genesis, a chapter later, this is what it says. It says, the Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. So you've got this big thing, fill the earth and subdue it, or... or fill the earth and govern it, what is Adam's practical job? What is it? It's a job some of you may have had. There were gardener, he's a gardener. That, that's how he's presented in the story. Can you see? Yeah, big picture goal, but it's something we can all get involved in very practically. It's a practical outworking of that for Adam. Now, vital we just stop here and just check what's going on, because this is uh, there's an amazing thing about this story, and the amazing thing is where it is in our timeline, because this is happening before anything has gone wrong. This is when things are at their best. Days one to five, it's that God looks down and says, and the Lord saw that it was good. It's like he gives it a thumbs up. Yep, it's good. Day six, you've got Adam, you know, planting some seeds, doing some weeding, cutting a hedge, and God looks down and goes, it was very good. Double thumbs up. And you might have thought, Adam, would look like, oh, yeah, it's all right for you. My back is hurting. And if it's anything like me, my fingers are hurting. and I'm getting muddy. It's not so great down here. No, no, no. God's like, it was very good. And Adam would have looked back and gone, you know what? This is very good. This is a great situation here. To work with God on the jobs that God is doing is in our very DNA. It's not a result of the fall. It's not of where things went wrong. It's who we are. It's who we were made to be. And it involves practical roles that we can all play our part in. 
before we move on to the second of these, um, I want to push this home even further because this is so at odds with our culture's view uh, of things. Because our culture, I'm sure as you're aware, generally wouldn't be that into kind of paradise in the afterlife sort of way. Does anyone watch The Good Place here? Does anyone see that show? So you get every now and again, you get things where they think about what might the afterlife be like, but the whole thing's kind of a philosophical meditation on what it could be. Um, people don't often go on about paradise in that sense, but we do have a view of paradise in our culture. Again, question to you guys. If we talk about a secular view of paradise, what would some of the features of paradise be? A beach. It's always beaches, isn't it? Beaches? Yeah, what else? Cocktails. Cocktails on the beach. Yep. Sunshine. Barbecues. Yeah, I like that. What else over here? Palm trees. I can see some of your phones now booking your holiday. They're like, yes, that's where I want to be. Tell you, that's, yeah, I think complete, completely. I'll tell you three things that don't feature in many secular views of paradise. Alarm clock at 6 a.m., not usually there. Uh, scraping the ice off your car window to get to work, not there. Um, uh, going through your targets with your boss, not usually in people's view of paradise. Now, I just want to be clear, I'm not claiming that all of those features will exactly be in the world to come when Jesus returns. Okay, the alarm clock, the uh, ice off the car window, the targets. But you know what? I think probably there'll be some things like them. Just think about it. I don't know if you often think about this. What's it going to be like after Jesus returns? Well, I think there might be some things close to that. And the reason I say that is because the Christian vision of the good life is not one of eternal leisure and relaxation. No, it's one of meaningful, dignified work. It's what it was like at the beginning, and it's what it's going to be like at the end, according to the Bible. Let's go back to the beginning then, to, before we move on and see what happens. As, as we know, in the beginning, it doesn't work out as we would have thought it do. People do not take up their jobs with gusto and glee, do they? <laughs> no, and we're all implicit, complicit in this whole scenario. We decide to rebel against God. We don't want to do the work that he wants to do. In fact, we've got other things we'd like to do, and we chose to go off and do them instead. And the rest of this story really is how God then responds to fix the consequences of our rebellion. And in a sense, as I've already said, this is the story we've got here of how we get our dream job back after we got ourselves spectacularly fired right about here. So let's move on to this one here. A few, uh, a period of time later, um, uh, there is a man, and he is from a nomadic tribes people who worship the moon, as far as we could gather. So I don't know whether he's worshiping the moon on this particular day, but uh, the moon does not respond to him, which it tends not to, as far as I'm aware. Um, but God talks to him. God, whether it's a booming voice or whatever it is, in Genesis 12, verse 1, God speaks to this man. Any ideas? You might peep this one. Yep, whether you did or not, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Very good, that voice over there. You should feel very proud of yourself. Abraham, this is what God says to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 1. Leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. 
I mean, whatever Abraham was doing at this moment, this is a good thing to be told. God, suddenly, you don't even know, suddenly says, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless you, and then I'm going to bless you some more. Okay, this is great, and it's essentially a whole load of promises of God's blessing. But notice, it does come implied in the whole promise is a job to do. In fact, there are two jobs to do here. First, I will make you into a great nation. It's not that one day Abraham's ancestors are going to wake up, oh, we haven't done anything. We're a great nation. What a surprise. Now, some work will need to be done here, uh, or there's a promise backing it all up. And at the end, all the families on earth will be blessed through you. Again, you would expect there to need to be activity that's going to need to be done in that direction, although it's a promise uh, from God. So these are promises given to Abraham, but obviously... Uh, It's not something he and his wife are going to be able to do. Those are quite big promises. It's going to involve his his descendants, and they're going to need to take that on. So there's a mission here that Abraham's given. Let's just notice similarities here between what we saw over here. Uh, What you see here is this is a call to bless. It's a call to be a blessing. Over here, it was to bring life and order to the chaos. I know that order can sometimes be done in such a way that's not a blessing. Fascism is a pretty effective way of bringing order without being particularly much of a blessing. Okay? But we're not talking about that. This is a type of order, dispelling chaos, that's to do people good. That's what they were told to do, life and order in the chaos. Exactly the same here, be a blessing. and going to make you a blessing to all the families on earth. Look at the scope as well, just the same as in Genesis. In Genesis, it was fill the earth. This is a thing for the whole earth. Here it's all the families on earth will be blessed through you. There's another thing that we see here in this story, and it's that if you know the story, you'll know this story teaches us we, while we've got this job, despite our sin, we can still play a role. It's not a job we can do on our own. And Abraham finds that out because Abraham, as I've said, it needs to be done, done dramatic dropping of the, the thing. Uh, it needs to be done through his descendants, but that's the problem. Abraham can't have any children. Abraham and Sarah, his wife, they've been trying uh, for a long time and nothing, nothing's happened. And Oh, thank you very much. Um, and they're old. In fact, they're really old. But what do they do? Well, Abraham does something that if you're a Christian here, you'll know is the easiest thing in one sense, but also the most difficult thing that we could be asked to do. Believe God. That's what it says, Abraham. Did he believe God? He trusted that God could do what he said he could do. And what was the result? Well, the result was when Abraham was about 100, and as Paul puts it in Romans 4, Sarah's womb was dead, God caused Sarah to miraculously conceive. Now, it's vital we understand this in God's mission, because this is the same all the way through as we go along. What we see here is that God's making clear, despite our sin, the job's still on. He wants us to bring us back on board with the job, but he's telling us, don't Run ahead of yourself, though. You cannot do this on your own. You do not have what it takes to do this job on your own. Yes, you have a role to play, and we have a role to play, but God is going to need to do the heavy lifting. God will need to take the decisive action. As we go through to other characters in the story, we'll see this happening over and over again. And therefore, one of the key elements of the job is relying on God's intervention, his miraculous intervention. This is why when we meet to pray every other Sunday evening, it's not just, oh, it's it's something, it's one of the many things on the timetable. No, we must pray because we must. If 
If we pray, we're saying, God, we rely on you. We know we can't get this done without you. We need your intervention. So let's move on. What happens next then? Well, Abraham, as I've said, he has a child. Uh, his, child his child has children. They have children. And uh, in a few hundred years, they're a large extended family. But they're not a great nation. Why are they not a great nation? Well, it's because they are slaves in Egypt. They are the workforce of Egypt. So Q, who's going to be here, do you reckon? I didn't hear. That was a bit more tentative. Maybe this one was better disguised, but you did get it. I think it was an authoritative Beth declaration. Is that right, Beth? Moses. Yes, it was Moses. I'll put some pyramids on. I couldn't work out whether they would have had pyramids then or whether he was building the pyramids or whatever, but that's what Google Images said about Egypt, so I stuck it on. Okay, Moses, uh, who did live in Egypt. Now, Moses' early life was full of peril, danger, and excitement, but I'm afraid I'm going to fast forward through all that and pick it up when he's an old guy. He's a shepherd outside of Egypt, away from God's people, a place called Horeb. And uh, Moses is tending the sheep, and uh, he sees out the corner of his eye, I imagine it, uh, a, a fire. And a bush is on fire. And so he wanders over to see what's going on. And he sees this even more strange than he might have thought. Because the bush is on fire, but it's not burning up. It's burning, but not burning uh, in that sort of sense. And then just like to Abraham, suddenly he hears a voice. God speaks to him, this time out of the burning, but not burning bush. And uh, God, essentially, you can see this conversation in Exodus 3. But I'll paraphrase it for you. It goes like this. God says, hi, Moses, I'm God. I've got a job for you. That's essentially the conversation. I'll tell you exactly what he says in verse 10. He sets the job. This is what God says. Now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. There's a job. There's a mission for you, Moses. And uh, it's a big mission. But if you know the story, if you've seen the movies, you will know that Moses does exactly that thing. He completes his mission. But before we move on to the next part of our story, we learn a new thing here in the story. It's vital that we get hold of as we think of this mission and this job to do. Because what we find out from the story of Moses is that Moses working together with God and for God did not lessen the intimacy of his relationship with God. As we, I've been talking about the Christian life through this lens of work and mission, you might be thinking, yeah, but the problem with that is God then essentially becomes our boss. And however good a boss he is, that means the best we can hope for is a kind of professional working relationship. And that seems to be different to the intimacy of the Father and God as our friend and all those things. How do those things square we either work for God or we're close to God. The two things don't work. Well, what we see in the story of Moses is the two things really do work. Because Moses is someone who worked with God. He had a very specific mission. But he was someone who had the closest relationship with God almost out of anybody in the Old Testament. Exodus 33.11 says this, The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. I think that's a wonderful image of friendship, this conversation almost with God. So the whole story of Moses is a story of him working out his friendship with God as they work together to do this task to get into the promised land. But working with God didn't take away from his friendship. No, working with God was the context in which the friendship was worked out. Are you feeling close to God today? Do you feel like my relationship with God is buzzing today? Or do you feel like 
I've talked to a number of Christians like this who said to me in a really honest moment, you know, I've been a Christian for years. I've never really understood what it means to have a relationship with God. We respect people who come up with that honesty because that's an exposing thing to say. I wonder if any of you are in that place today. Yeah, I've been doing this for ages, but what's a relationship? And often advice given could be, well, great to pray. Read the Bible. Let's, I could pray for you, all of those things. Those things are really good. But you know, one thing I think that's really important in this is, are you on a mission with him? Are you working shoulder to shoulder with him? The context of relationship for Moses was mission. It was a job. If he wasn't on the job, he wouldn't have had a relationship with God at all, probably. We can't forget that as our relationship with God. This is not either or. Will we be his friend or will we work for him? No, this is together. We get to come into the family, but we also get to join the family business. The two things are put together all the way through Scripture. As we shall find out, let's move on 700 years, or in this sense, about 30 centimeters, to the next of our chairs, where Moses and uh, the people of God come out of Egypt. They become a great nation. Uh, They get rules and laws, a legal system on Mount Sinai, the law of Moses. They get a place to live, the promised land. They're a great nation. But you know what? 700 years later, things actually are starting to fall apart for the nation of Israel. They've had some great times, but 700 years after Moses is not a great time. The northern kingdom, 10 of the 12 tribes are exiled by uh, the power of Assyria. They're taken away out of the land. The uh, tribes that remain just lumped together in the southern kingdom called Judah, uh, it's really only a matter of time for them now. You, you can see that from the geopolitical situation of, the, of that day. Uh, and there, there's been an unfaithfulness that has marked Israel's history up to this point, And things are looking bad. And if I was an, a devout Jew at this time on my knees praying to Yahweh, the God of Israel, I think on a really, really good day, I would have set my ceiling of hope at survival. That's what I'd have done. I mean, God, please, can we not be wiped out? That's the best I can hope for. Give us some corner of the planet where we can just keep worshipping you somewhere. Don't let us all be destroyed because that's where it looked like it was all going. And into that context, God speaks to a prophet called Isaiah in Isaiah 49 verse 6. And he says, no, actually, I've got a slightly different perspective to that. This is what he says. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. It's like a broken record here, God. It's like he's just restating the mission again to them. Like just like with Abraham, yes, you've been unfaithful, but the mission's still on. Yes, you've been unfaithful, but the mission's still on. It's the same mission as well. Look, just like over here, it was fill the earth and subdue it. Now it's May the salvation may reach to the to the what? To the ends of the earth. It's exactly the same mission. Just like over here, God saw a, a chaos characterized by darkness. And he came along and he started by saying, the first thing we need to fix here is this darkness. What's the first thing he says? Let there be light. I will make you a light for the Gentiles. The mission's still on, guys, even though you've messed it all up. He's saying, despite your unfaithfulness, I'm still about you being a blessing to the nations. I'm still about the ends of the earth. And I'm still calling you, my people, to join me in making this happen. But the question must have been, Isaiah must have asked this question. How on earth are we going to do this? 
God, you have seen our track record here. You've seen that you kept encouraging us here, and we've kept messing it up. It's not just that we, we need your miraculous intervention. Our hearts are wrong. We keep going the other way. Just like Adam and Eve didn't want to follow your mission, and we're not on their own missions that clashed with your mission, we just keep doing the same thing over and over again. How is this situation going to get fixed? You'll never guess who the next one in our story is. How is the situation going to get fixed? Jesus. Some of you guys didn't go to Sunday school enough. You should know that's the answer. It's always the answer. Okay. Oh, no. Sellotape problems. We got it. Years later, Jesus arrives and everything comes together. So how does this happen? Well, I think we could say this. Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he found a way to decisively address our problem. By dying in our place, Jesus offered us forgiveness for the gross misconduct that got us sacked in the first place. As he died, Jesus defeated the enemy, the devil, Satan. The New Testament's clear on this. How should we understand this? Well, one way we should understand this is that by defeating the devil, Jesus essentially bought us out of the contract that we had foolishly signed with a rival and particularly nasty boss. That's what he did. But of course, he didn't stay dead. He rose again. And by rising again, Jesus found a way to give us a completely new attitude so that as long as a whole load of other things, we could be far more productive and happy workers working together with God. All the way from the time of Abraham, God made it clear that he wanted us back, us sinful people, back on board with the mission. But you know what? It was Jesus who got us our jobs back. Thank you, Jesus. What a privilege, an amazing thing. And so once Jesus had died and he'd risen again, he gathered his followers together to tell them the news. He, I imagine he sat them all down. I don't know if that's exactly how it happened. But in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, he broke it to them. He said, guys, it's back on. The mission's back on. This is what we're going to do. I have been given all authority in heaven on earth, he says. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He's underlining again. It's back on. He's underlining something really profound that I think we've got to understand. Is that being back in the family, being adopted as sons and daughters, is in some ways the beginning and not the end of the story. Think of the story of the prodigal son. Prodigal son, he runs off, doesn't he? And he goes and does all this stuff away from his father. And he comes back to the father thinking, ah, oh, he's not going to take me back. But amazingly, the father's there at the gates and he hugs the son and says, no, no, don't tell me about what you've done. You're accepted back as a son. Let's have a party. Let's celebrate your adoption back into my family. And so they kill the fatted calf, whatever the fatted calf may be. It sounds tasty, though. Uh, he, they kill the fatted calf and they party. And that's where the story of the prodigal son kind of ends. I wonder what happens next. You ever thought, what happens? What happens the next day in the story of the prodigal son? Again, it's a story with fictional characters, so nothing happens in that sort of sense. But I think if the story continued, according to the story of Scripture, I think what would have happened pretty soon would have been the father would have said to his son, son, you're back. Now let's go to work. Back in the family business. You go, me? You'd let me do that? Surely as a slave. No, not as a slave. 
You're working with me as a son, shoulder to shoulder with the father together. No, what Jesus was saying was, yes, you've come in, you're adopted, you're sons and daughters, but also you get to be back in the mission. You get to be back on the job. But even forgiven, and even with a new heart, and even with Jesus' motivating words ringing in their ears, this still looked like a tall order. They needed resources for the task. And so just before Jesus went to heaven, a little bit of time after Matthew 28, in Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus mentions someone else. And he says this, you will receive power when the... Didn't even need to guess that one. Okay, I helped you out. Good job. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, the Holy Spirit has not featured in my version of the story so far, but he's been all the way through it, right from there, all the way on and on and on. And actually, Jesus had mentioned the Holy Spirit as well, many times to his disciples. And Jesus had made clear to them on a number of occasions, I said, guys, you've got to be ready for the fact that I'm going to leave at some point. I'm off. And they would have been, oh, what does this mean? He said, that, yeah, but you've got to understand as well, while I'll be leaving, I'm going to leave with you someone else. Someone who's a bit like me. Another one like me. Uh, he's like a comforter. You could see him like that. Or you could see him like a counselor. He used words like, uh, and essentially he's the Holy Spirit. Now, for all of Jesus' comfort here, I would imagine the disciples weren't entirely happy with this arrangement. Just imagine today, Jesus was like, oh, just we've got a new secondment for Church Central South. Jesus will be with us for a term or so. And then he goes, I'm going. He'd be like, no, we want you to stay. Don't give us someone else. And so the disciples are not happy that Jesus is leaving. And so in John's gospel, he makes this incredible statement. He says to his disciples with a completely straight face, he says, it's better for me, for you, sorry, that I go. It's better. It's better that I, Jesus, am no longer with you. Can, you. can you imagine Jesus saying that to you? It's better. Better that I'm not here. Why? Because if I stay here, I can't send you the Holy Spirit. That is bigging up the Holy Spirit, isn't it? Wow. What he's saying is the Holy Spirit is that amazing that it's better that I go so the Holy Spirit can be with you. For us as Christians, we get, I think, a little bit of a flavor, I hope, of what he meant. Because the Holy Spirit is amazing. The Holy Spirit is awesome. The Holy Spirit helps us in pretty much every area of our Christian life. The Holy Spirit gives us guidance. He helps us hear the voice of God. He gives us gifts that we can share with others and help us in our worship. He helps us develop characteristics in our life of self-control and gentleness and joy, the fruits of the Spirit. He helps us to know that we are God's children. He brings that sense of his presence, God's presence, right to us. That's good, isn't it? We're good? We like that? Okay. So I think that's amazing stuff. But amazing as all those things are, actually, and not wanting to take away from any of them, really important, those things are all secondary benefits of the Spirit. None of the things I've just mentioned in one sense are the main reason the Spirit was given. Why was the Spirit given? He was given as the main resource to get the job done. Now that we're forgiven, reconciled, redeemed, restored, and re-employed through Jesus, we still can't do the job on our own. Remember what happened to Abraham? He couldn't miraculously conceive that child. God did. Moses leads the people out and they're at the edge of the sea. He cannot miraculously split the sea. God can. 
Now we're in exactly the same situation. But the situation is this now. We've got the Holy Spirit of God living inside us, available to us at all times to resource us for the job that God has given us. And it's not perfect. One day when Jesus returns, we'll know God's presence in an even greater way. But notice this. It's pretty good. Think back to Adam in the garden. The situation painted in the garden is one of Adam working in the presence of God. Genesis 3 says that God walks in the garden in the cool of the day. That's how familiar God was with the garden. Adam's weeding or sowing seeds or cutting hedges or whatever, and it's like God's just there, working in the presence of God. Now, we are given jobs to do. We work, we pick the job up in different ways. We bring blessing, we introduce people to the good news, we love and we serve others. We do it too in the real presence of God, with God living inside us. We're co-laboring with God. That's what God gives us the possibility to do through his uh, redemption and through filling us with the Spirit. So that leaves us with just one more thing. And uh, this brings up to speed slightly. You won't guess this one because it's not in the Bible. Um, It's now. It's us. Slightly drab. The the west one had a nice blue sky, but I don't know why the image I got of the south was so grey. But anyway, maybe it's prophetic in some crazy way. I don't know. Um, How do we play our part in this whole story then? Let's finish just by by considering that. And a few years ago, uh, the leaders of the church got together and we asked this exact question. We, We asked... How as a church can we help people to get on board with this, this mission this, this, in this story here? And we, uh, we count with three things uh, here. Uh, some of you might have seen them before, but these are the things we landed on. We want to make Jesus the most talked about person in Birmingham, be for the good of our city, and impact nations. Just to be clear, these didn't come down on stone tablets from heaven for us or anything like that. I'm sure they could have been worded differently. They're not infallible. But there are our attempts to kind of help us to find our way, help everyone find our way into this story so we can play a part in this mission, so we can break this down for us in our time and in our place. And I just want to close by tying this all together by just showing where we, how we landed on those three things from our story. Because I think I can do that. In a sense, you might have thought, why did they pick those three things? Why? Uh, I'm very, very quickly, it won't take very long. I want to tie it all together by just answering that question. Well, why these three? Why is that our way of interpreting this job? Let's start with the first one, which always seems like a good idea. To make Jesus the most talked about person in Birmingham. It might go without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway, is Jesus is the only way to get us back into God's family. He is the only way to redeem us, to restore us, to reconcile us, to forgive us. He's our only hope. Just get your head around that phrase, okay? He is our only hope. Without Jesus, we have nothing. The rest of this story just doesn't matter. It's just irrelevant. Nothing matters, actually. He's our only hope. You see a world around us that has lost all hope. And all we're doing, really, as Christians, who are we? We're those who are clinging on to Jesus. Because he's our only hope. But the glory of it is that our only hope is a wonderful hope. He's a brilliant hope. So therefore, in all we do, and all we say, and how we live, and where we live, and who we hang out with, and how we go about our jobs, and how we look for work when we don't have jobs, 
and how we raise our kids and how we use our singleness and how we treat our spouses and how we use our retirement and how we use our artistic skills and how we use our positions of influence in our workplace and in our communities and where we go on holiday and how we rest and how we work. We do everything to make people respect and honor Jesus more and hopefully to get some of them to come back to God the Father through him. We want to make Jesus the most talked about person in our city. Number one. Number two, we want to do good for Birmingham. Church Central South, we take seriously the banner that goes over our call over everything. And that banner is to be a blessing. To bring life and order in the chaos. Through you, all the families of earth will be blessed. That's our calling, to do people good. I'll put my cards on the table here. I think that the best way we can do people good is by leading them to Jesus and by leading them to become disciples of Jesus. That's the most profound good that I can do for anybody. But I think it's really important we don't miss the wood from the trees here. And I've done this lots of times. And you think, well, this is the best. And therefore, it's either this or nothing. Either come to Jesus or, well, I don't want to have anything to do with you. I think that kind of misses the point slightly of, through you, all the families on earth will be blessed. Our call is to bless. Our call is to increase joy. Our call is to serve and to encourage. Our call is to reduce suffering and to bring dignity to people who don't have it. Our call is to treat our planet in such a way that our children's 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 children will still find it a blessing for them. We're here to do people good. And uh, what I've noticed is the people who are closest to us happen to be Brummies. And so what we're going to do is we're going to start with them, if that's okay. We're here for the good of Birmingham. One and two, easy to explain. Now, when we were going through this as a team of uh, leaders, we were in an office in uh, the jewellery quarter. Okay, I remember us doing it. We were sitting around. There was probably a flip chart involved somewhere. Um, And I remember after number two, I got to that point where you get to in a meeting where I started packing my bags. (laughs) Right, we're done here, I think. Birmingham, as far as I'm aware, is rather big. It's like a million people, two million in greater Birmingham. That's going to take a while. And I've got my faith struggling anyway, but I'm probably about there. Uh, Everyone agreed, let's move on. Unfortunately for me at that point, that was not the case for everyone else in the room. They, there was a third thing people wanted to throw into the pot, and so we ended up with the third, to impact nations. Now, just to be clear, I'm not being dismissive of this one. Uh, everyone else was right here. They really were, and I've, I've come to that conclusion. But I'll be honest, the, every time I see this part of our mission statement, um, I just feel it's incredibly daunting. Whenever I see this, whenever I say this, into my head pops the thought, how, how on earth can we, as a medium-sized church in the second city, in a medium-sized country, expect to have any impact on the nations? How? And uh, as I've thought that, I've learned to listen to the voice of God. I think it's the voice of God that says to me straight after a verse. And it's a verse that we've heard already. It's Isaiah 49, verse 6, and it says this, It is too small a thing. Johnny, you're trusting me for too small a thing. Because as we've seen throughout this whole uh, thing here, the whole time that, that we've been looking at the story, God's mission he wraps us up in has always been wildly far-reaching, hasn't it? Fill the earth. All the earth will be blessed. Make disciples of all nations. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. 
That's our job. It's our mission. That's our God. And like I said at the very beginning, while some of us might be involved in different ones of them a little bit more than others, that's who we are. You can't separate who we are and what we do. That's not how the Bible works. The two things are the same. The mission is who we are as a church. To be part of Church Central uh, South, to be part of a Church Central church is to sign up for that mission. (laughs) Maybe you're thinking, okay, that's fine. There are other churches around, though. (laughs) I'll find one of them. That looks a daunting mission. If that's what you're thinking now, I've got some really bad news for you. (laughs) I think it's good news, but it's bad in that context. To be a Christian is to sign up for this mission. Let's just blow it. I've gone this far. As I tried to explain here is, actually, according to the Bible, to be a human being flourishing as our creator intended, it means to be on this mission. So my call to you as we finish is, what about you? Where do you fit into all of this? The creator of all things, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, has graciously called us to join him in his work. He wants to work shoulder to shoulder with you. You are not called to be a passive recipient of his blessing, but he trusts you. He trusts you to join the family business, to get your hands dirty, bringing blessing to your community, to your city, and even to the ends of the earth. Are you in? Can we stand? I want to pray for us.